0: Hello and welcome to this rather special edition of Nightlight in that this is light, Nightlight number three hundred. Twenty five years ago uh this this work was begun and it's kind of a milestone to say the least. I can't imagine uh talking that much, and I can't imagine people listening that much. You know, uh, it's always, anybody who talks for a living, especially if they have any respect for scripture, is a little bit daunted by the fact that they make their living talking. I don't make my living talking, mine is even more serious than that, a broadcaster or a lecturer might make his living talking. I am called to communicate the gospel and to comfort and strengthen and guide the people of God the best I can. And the reason that's daunting is because scripture says in the book of James that teachers will be under a more stringent scrutiny because we are claiming to be the guide and the light for other people. And also, the book of Proverbs warns that where there is much speech, there is almost unavoidably much error. Or from a line in Ben-Hur, where Pontius Pilate says to Ben-Hur, where there is great power, error also is great. I'm. I feel the weight of that, even though we're no big deal and we're not some great organization. I'm still very much aware of the weight of responsibility uh, of coming into the homes and minds and private lives of hundreds of people, and we don't. We really don't know how many people because of the the web. Uh, availability. But I'm aware of... of Here I sit in my little study looking out the window at the bluebirds and the rabbits and the squirrel that I would like to knock upside the head with a stick. And uh, I'm aware that what I say and what I think gets communicated into a recording device that gets communicated into your private world and to some degree or other, has influence, whether for good or for ill, on your life. And when the scriptures remind me of the responsibility that I have uh, in, in, in that, then uh, I do this with a great deal of preparation and prayer and uh, godly fear, as well as deep gratitude to all of you. So on this 300th anniversary of Nightlight, I want to take some time away from the rather demanding subject of righteousness and justice, which we have been looking at for the last couple of sessions, and which we will, Lord willing, look at uh, in some to come. And just go back and uh, review some issues and uh, questions that people have had uh, more recently, I suppose, because we we have new people from time to time that ask questions about uh, how nightlight functions and how it started and so forth. That could be terribly boring for many of you who've been around for a while. But uh, I'll try not to dwell on the things that I know are just Absolutely common knowledge for all of you. But the first question that people often ask is uh, how, how Nightlight began. And some of you who have been with us for uh, even from the beginning, 25 years ago, may not know that Nightlight began when Mary was in a conversation with our Hebrew mentor and close, close friend, Dwight Pryor. When Dwight just casually said to Mary over a cup of coffee one day, why don't you and Clay do a monthly message so that the people that are interested in what you do and what you teach have some regular means of of interacting with you, and it also will give Clay an outlet to communicate on subjects that he doesn't have opportunity to uh, expand on in the more public meetings. At that time, 25 years ago, Mary and I were on on the road literally some 200 days out of every year. Um, That, of course, changed as the children came along, and uh, we had to adjust some of that. But in those first few years, uh, we were gone way more than we were here. And uh, if it wasn't for the service and and help and uh, integrity of John and Natalie Benson, who laid their life down to run the office and run the ministry while we were gone so much, we we could not have done it. But uh, when when Mary and Dwight presented this idea to me, I thought, well, nobody wants to hear me talk that much. But I don't think they would ever want to do it on a regular basis, but uh, thankfully, they overrode my opinion. And Mary began to oversee the development of nightlight, and uh, so the first year or so, we, we just took, we took the topics that were most difficult to communicate in the conferences where we were teaching uh, publicly. And we expounded on those topics in an hour-long message every month. And lo and behold, much to my surprise, uh, several hundred people wanted it to keep coming. I I really was naive about it. Uh, I'm not trying to portray myself with some kind of false humility. Uh, I don't think I'm ever too guilty of humility. False or true, but I really didn't think there would be a need or a desire for it. But then we began to hear from people in conversational ways as well, as well as letters and, you know, phone calls saying, you know, this is really helping me. Please keep it coming. And, uh, I didn't understand why, but I just kept plugging away at it and it continued to grow. And so, uh, that's just kind of the basic beginning. Other other times, people will often ask, "Why do you call it Nightlight? How did that come about?" Well, there's scripture in Second uh, Peter chapter one, where where Peter says, "You do well to take heed as to a light that shines in a dark place." And uh, at this time in our lives, we, we were beginning to really encounter on a wide scale uh, the, the, the level of spiritual pressure pushing against the family, pushing against the ministry, uh, all people's ministries, all people's families. We begin to really feel the, the, the wind of the enemy blowing against the basic principles of of what it means to be human. And uh, I began to realize there were subjects that were going to have to be addressed that could not be addressed in a public setting on a Sunday morning, or even in the, the public settings of a conference where the topics were more uh, shall we say, more adult, more uh, more embarrassing for some people. And we begin to realize that these things have to be taught and and so we begin to be able to do that. Once a month was never enough, but it seemed to be enough to encourage people to keep plugging away in their private battles. I want to be careful not to insult the hard working pastors who are doing quite often the best they know how with a, a very difficult task. Uh, but the local church was not equipped and wasn't set up to deal with the level of psychological, emotional, and sexual brokenness that was beginning to erupt on a larger and broader scale throughout the 1990s and on into the beginning of the new millennium. And uh, most pastors, uh, of course, this is common sense, I hope we all understand this, that most pastors, it's all they can do to take care of their own wife and children and lead the body of Christ in the basic principles of body life. But it, it got to where by the 1990s pastors were being uh, pulled on to be uh, guidance counselors and marriage counselors and financial counselors and CEOs of a corporation, so to speak, uh, as well as uh, all the other demands placed on a pastor in the American church system. And beside the fact that the American church system was at that time terribly lacking in common sense in that one man can't possibly take care of uh, more than uh, his own family and a few others. Uh, we saw in that era uh, uh, just a, cata- a cataclysm of breakdowns. Uh, hundreds, hundreds of pastors were leaving the ministry just out of exhaustion. I remember Dr. Dobson did a, a um, a report after Focus on the Family had done a, a in detailed study on this and found that uh, some, at that time, you know, statistics are always dangerous, but at that time the report was that some 90% of of pastors in the survey reported that the pastorate was detrimental to their own families, detrimental to their own mental health. That should not be. It It would not be if we had followed a more biblical pattern of church hierarchy and church government, but it is what it is or it was what it was. And so in those days, it was not uncommon for pastors to sometimes say to me and Mary, would you be willing to address some of these more difficult subjects that our local church just can't uh, tackle and so we would come in, in uh, seminar uh, settings, and do that best we could. But I knew it was, uh, I felt like it was spitting in a volcano. But still, the sower sows the word, and, and the Holy Spirit blesses it, and uh, fruit began to come forth, and people began to delve into deeper study of the scriptures, and begin to become disciples through the instrument of nightlight. We called it nightlight because of that scripture in Second Peter chapter 2. You, you do well to take heed to a light that shines in a dark place. Now that can sound very presumptuous on our part. Oh, so you think you're a great light shining in a dark place. Well, if you're in a dark enough place, any tiny little light looks really, really impressive. And so, yes, to be honest, in the midst of a great deal of darkness that was beginning to become ensconced in Western culture, especially American American culture, we felt that what we were communicating was a, was a great light, and uh, not nearly not nearly the level of light we longed to be able to communicate. And we felt our inadequacies, and we felt our our weakness more than ever, but uh, we were called to do what we did and as one great pastor said uh, to a friend of mine, "If you're called to do something and you don't know how to do it well, then you have to do it badly, but you have to do it and so in those early days uh <laughs> we did it we did it the best we could, but my my sweetheart worked her fingers to the bone, taking taped messages that were recorded uh, on the road, transferring them to a format that we could reproduce for Nightlight, which was all on cassette. Those of you now uh, who, uh, you may have to ask your grandparents to tell you what cassettes were. But uh, she would... uh, she would run those cassettes on a on a, a duplicator. Uh, I remember we had to buy a couple of what was called slaves to add to the duplicator so that we could multi multiply the the reproduction of the cassettes quite more quickly than just one at a time. For heaven's sakes, and so uh, by the mid 1990s, we we were running uh, I don't know ten or twelve at a time. And that was still a long all-day job for two or three days in a row. So, uh, and then we would mail them out. And uh, well, so, in, in that period, Nightlight was what we did while I was making plans to do something more interesting. <laughs> you know the, the the old saying that life is what happens while you while you're making other plans. Well. Nightlight was what was happening while I was making other plans. And the other plans, uh, in that, uh, period included more conferences, more traveling. How in the world I thought we were going to do more when we were already gone some 200 days out of the year? I don't know, but, you know, when you're young and full of energy and ego, uh, you, you figure it's no, no big task to do it. Uh, but it began to become obvious that night light, which and we called it night light based on that scripture, but we also called it night light because we did believe it was becoming, for, for some people, a light shining in a dark place. Some in churches where they didn't feel they were being fed, and again, I say that with trepidation because I'm a little I'm a little bothered by those of us who've been walking with the Lord for too many years and we're still wanting someone to quote feed us which we, we feed little ones but there comes a point when we should be able to feed ourselves but still for whatever the reason people said you know we're not getting much food in our church and nightlight is helping us so please keep it coming um uh, Also, though, uh, we we believed we were were communicating to people with specific needs that were learning even though it was an hour a month. Some people would tell me, to my amazement, they would take one night light and listen to it several times, take notes on it, transcribe it use it in Bible studies with groups. And so it was reproducing itself far more than the one hour a month uh, recording time or listening time. Every every nightlight uh, that became an hour-long message usually had 10 to 15 hours of preparation behind it. And so I would do that if I didn't do a, a recorded message that came from the road, then I had to do a studied message that was prepared off the road. And uh, that that became more daunting and more demanding. But it also became more and more the direction that we felt we were to go with Nightlight. And so uh, rather than the early messages coming from live conferences... By the time we got to the end of the 1990s, many of our new teaching series were coming from nightlight messages that had been compiled over a a several-month period, and many of those titles are obviously available to this day. But in in those early days... uh, it was a way to stay in touch with each other. It was a way to communicate what was on our hearts. As Dwight and Mary laughingly said, it was a way for Clay to vent some of his topical ideas that he knew he couldn't do in a conference setting. And so uh, that's how it all started. But it began to change as we began to make certain subjects uh, more available for for people who were seriously wanting to become students. They weren't satisfied with just listening to a message driving down the road, good as that is. They began to want to, to study with me, so to speak. Now, please notice what I'm saying. I didn't say they were learning from me. They were studying alongside me. They were, they were standing alongside me looking over my shoulder and we were looking at the same scriptures, wrestling with the same topics, uh, working through the same personal struggles, delving into, uh, doctrinal conundrums and uh, difficulties that had daunted us. As believers, and kept us from having a more full, and and meaningful, and functional Christian life. And so, uh, from that point, Nightlight began to become a discipling, a real discipling tool. Now, uh, we don't know how many people listened to Nightlight. It went from cassette to CD, I remember the day when Mary had to send out the notice that we would no longer be able to make cassettes available. And (laughs) I have the deepest sympathy with people who wrote us or called us and said, no, 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 don't change the cassettes. Uh, For those of you who are too young to even know what that's about, you know, when you spend 30 or 40 years investing in a certain Means of of uh, audio accessibility, then it all changes. You've got a huge financial investment in uh, in all of that, and it's hard to give up. It's also hard to just change for for change's sake. You know, it's just as we get older, it's harder to change. I, I remember uh, how funny it was when I began to get phone calls from people. Telling me I needed to see Guardians of the Galaxy, and they—it's funny—they wouldn't tell me why I needed to see Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a comedy science fiction movie for those of you who don't know and don't care. But when I finally did see it, it didn't take me but thirty seconds into the opening credits for me to know why they were uh, saying that, because this this space cowboy is riding around the universe uh listening to a cassette player. Uh, listening to seventies rock and roll on his cassette player, well, I got the point. They were making fun of me about my cassette player. You know, for years I would buy a car from the same guy in Boone. I, we bought the seven cars from him, and I, I always told him, you know, make sure I have a cassette player in it. And he he would tell people that Clay McLean doesn't buy cars; he buys cassette players with automobiles attached to them. Well, now. I'm being told that uh CDs are not going to be included in the 2018 automobiles. So now you you don't even have CDs uh, anymore. Uh, so here we are with CDs stacking up and uh, they're all becoming passé. And that actually silly as that sounds, it creates a certain degree of of a conundrum for for me because we have a lot of people who are not in their twenties. We have a lot who are in their twenties, and they they laugh at this and you know make fun of us poor old souls because they are perfectly happy to receive uh, i guess to receive it in uh, uh, some kind of telepathic invisible message brain to brain that doesn't even even require uh, any physical object anymore. <laughs> But there's still a lot of people who uh, still want something physical in their hand that they can touch that all me that all brings me to this point. I give you that kind of funny sentimental background. but where are we now? What is it that we are what is it that we are aiming at? I sit here and think of the numbers of you out there who are, some of you are in prison ministries. Some of you are in prison. Some of you are uh, in areas of the country where there is no fellowship, where there's no strong gathering of believers, where uh, you gather literally around your coffee table or your, your dining table, with a number of other people in your neighborhood and you're you're yet it's not because you're snobs, it's not because you look down your nose at other members of the body of Christ who uh don't happen to fit your uh stringent requirements, it's because you are the only believers in your neighborhood or in your town or in your part of the county you live in. And uh, you write me and you tell me that you you count on this ministry to be at least a a portion of the contributing ministry to you in your area. I'm thankful we're not ever anybody's only source of of help. Thank you, Lord. But we are a large source of help for a lot of people in a lot of places. I think about those of you... uh, across the ocean, who this that that particularly uh, relates to um, missionaries. Uh, uh, sometimes we hear from people who have been listening to Nightlight, and they now they're getting it in all the different formats that we didn't make available because we don't know how and don't have the expertise or the personnel or the equipment or the financing to get it done but the Holy Spirit somehow is getting certain messages to certain people in certain parts of the world through means we don't even know how they got it. And I'm very thankful for that, very grateful for that. And by the way, lest I fail to, to mention it, very important mes- me- mention, Nightlight also inadvertently became the greatest source of financial support for this ministry that we have. I had no plans for that to happen. I had no intention for it to happen. I'm certainly not complaining that it happened, but I'm amazed that it happened, and it's only the grace of God and the love and generosity of you that made it happen. But next thing I knew, we were coming off the road in the... Uh, middle of the the 2004-2005 we were coming off the road almost completely and uh our income from conferences and from traveling uh would therefore disappear and yet nightlighters stepped in and picked up the slack where that occurred not because we asked anybody to You just did it. You just began to do it. People began to be moved on to give and that that put me on my face because I said, Lord, uh, I've got a responsibility to fulfill the call that nightlight turned out to be uh, the primary source of of fulfillment through. And so I began to, not that I ever was flippant, I I know there were times when I would listen to a recording and say, you know, I wish I hadn't said it that way, or I wish I had been more humble or more gracious or more loving or more clear. But that's one of the dangers. I remember Dwight telling me in those early days, because he'd been doing the Havarim uh, messages once a month that same way. We just We just copied his format, really. But one of the things he warned me about, he said, don't ever go back and re-listen to yourself. You'll become introspective, you'll become hypercritical, or worse, you'll become really impressed with your prowess. And either one of those is dangerous. Say the best you can what you have to say. Send it out there like a message in a bottle. Trust the Holy Spirit to guide and bless it and to whatever he cannot bless that it will just be passed over and forgotten. And we've prayed for that, and it has turned out often to be the case. But I, on, on certain occasions when I've gone back to re-listen for editing purposes, I can easily fall into the, the struggle of thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't said it like that or done it like that. And lo and behold, Dwight's warning becomes increasingly true. Uh, don't, don't get focused on yourself. And so, having said all that, where are we now? When I think of the the demands on many of you out there that I've already listed, and uh, the pressures you're under, the the ministry that you're sending forth. Some in your churches where you are fed by good, spiritually uh, uh, awake leadership alongside also those who don't have that kind of support. Every time I sit down to record a nightlight uh, I do it with fear and trembling. Uh, You may think I'm uh, totally in in command of what I'm doing, but I don't know, maybe you don't think that. You need to know that I'm aware of, of not a decreasing responsibility. This is not a swan song message, 300 night lights, and we're about to turn the lights out. On the contrary, it's now more than ever a sense of urgency, responsibility, and desire. To continue to communicate to you on the subjects that I believe are so vitally important, I know I'm only contributing. I know people who listen to Nightlight are students of the Word of God. They, uh, no, nobody who listens to Nightlight does so flippantly or with a shallow attitude, and that uh, that blesses me in many ways to know that. It also stretches me in many ways because I love the fact that sometimes some of you push back at me. I'll hear from some of you and say, you know, I don't know about what you said on this or that message. Could you expand on that a little bit or you offer me a different point of view? That to me is the way it should be. Nobody should be pontificating down from the ivory tower to you. We should all be learning together, wrestling through things together. See, one of the things that makes the fellowship, see, uh, Haverim, uh, that Dwight uh, initiated and taught us how to do, uh, Haverim has to do with a, a, a gathering of friends around the word of God, seeking to study the word together. There's no, there's no uh, guru Uh, handing edicts down to other people. and Again, I'm not saying that to be disrespectful to pastors in pulpits. Thank God for great pastors in great pulpits who are trying to speak the word of God the best they know. But uh, we've got to get away from a, a format of pulpit preaching if it is the only way of approaching the word of God that people are being taught through. That is one of the, as good as pulpit preaching and as important as it is. I mean, we just saw the passing of the greatest preacher in the history of of the gospel in some ways. And Billy Graham's passing hit me much harder than I thought it would. You, you thought, well, my goodness, he's nearly 100 years old. What what do you expect? But but when he passed, uh, I wept, and one of the reasons that I wept is I knew, is clearly as I know anything, that it was the end of an era, and the end of uh, uh, what we grew up with as uh, Christian culture, and uh, what I mean by that is uh, his passing marked in my heart and in the hearts of others I've spoken with a, a time of transition for the way the body of Christ thinks of itself, the way it operates in in discipling and in ministry to uh, to one another. And so as as great as, as the need is for good pulpit preaching sometimes, uh, I I don't want to say this in a way that makes you think I'm being critical of it. I'm thankful for great preaching. I love great preaching. But sitting in a pew once a week or even several times a week, listening to someone preach to you, uh, that might have been an adequate diet for us in the 50s and the 60s, even in the 70s. But by the 1980s and the 90s, it began to be clear that we need to be discipling And we need to be discipled. There needs to be a serious approach to the word of God that uh, has not been part of the, the, the lifestyle of most Christians up until that time. And so I'm thankful for all the proliferation of ways to study and ways to access preaching and ways to access scripture that has been un- it's unprecedented in in the history of of the world. That's that's something we we need to keep in mind. Uh, the great progress toward worldwide evangelism that is moving forward like a locomotive. Uh, that's a whole other subject, but statistically, uh, you don't need to be afraid that some. Demonic, uh, force like, uh, radical Islam is really what's, uh, taking over the world. That's, that's just propaganda. Uh, it's the kingdom of God that is advancing and has been since the Lord Jesus stepped out of the grave when he initiated the end of the age. You, you understand when Jesus stepped out of the grave, that was the beginning of the end of the age. And we've been in the end times ever since that day and the kingdom has been progressing forward ever since that day. And so now we come to this 300th anniversary of uh, Nightlight and I ask myself, okay what is our responsibility now for the next 25 years, the next 300 messages or whatever format they take. And so I want to I want to just address a few items, just a few of, of the things that are strongly on my heart that I believe we are to have a part to play in alongside many others that God is raising up to underscore these things. Cuz I see, I hear from so many of you who are from such divergent spiritual backgrounds I wish you all knew one another. I wish I could get you all together in one room. That is one reason why we continue to do the Black Mountain Conference every August, because that's the one format that we do offer where many of you come together and can begin to meet one another. And rather than being uh, people from different parts of the family that you're afraid won't get along with one another, It actually is the opposite. I see people coming together from very different backgrounds where 20 years ago you might have been in conflict with each other over secondary subjects that you thought were primary. Now, instead of it being a conflict, it's more of a cross-pollinization. When I see uh, uh, Presbyterians and Baptists and uh, Catholics and uh, Greek Orthodox and uh, no-denomination street people, uh, and black folks, and Hispanic folks, and Oriental folks, and people from every kind of background, north and south, and good old boy rednecks standing up there with a uh, someone from a high, high uh, church Anglicanism, and and nobody thinks in those terms. They they only love Jesus and love each other, and they may get into secondary conversations about. Uh, various topics, and I won't start listing the topics. You know the topics, all the things that we, uh, in days gone by, made primary, idolatrously made primary when they were not primary. It It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself that is primary. And out of our union with him, we have union with each other, and out of our union with each other, we can then safely open up the scriptures and begin to wrestle with the secondary topics. Uh, Everything is a secondary topic behind the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Everything is a secondary topic. And once you know that, there begins to be what Paul describes in Ephesians, the manifestation of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul says, seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say create the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say come together and try to get along with each other. He doesn't, he doesn't say that because it's not possible. The only way to do it is to enter into the unity of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit already has manifested and that is by holding fast to the head and seeking to honor and adore and obey him and and loving him and if your focus is on him then all those secondary subjects can begin to fall in place and i don't say that it's possible for the secondary subjects to ever be uh become something that we can all 100% completely agree on but That doesn't matter. I used to wrestle and wrestle with the question of how how is John 17 ever going to come to pass? It has to come to pass. The Lord Jesus said it would. Father, that they all might become one, as you and I are one, so that the world may know who I am. That has to happen. I used to think, how in the world are you ever going to get a wild-eyed Pentecostal and a reserved Presbyterian and a high church Anglican to agree on anything. Can't even get some Baptist to agree on anything among themselves. But I'm, I'm beginning to see it. Uh, it's, I'll tell you how it's happening. All those folks are falling in love with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they are approaching the scriptures now no longer as a denominational handbook or a proof text encyclopedia or a law that they use to make people behave a certain way, but they're approaching the scriptures uh, in their search to understand and know him and uh, as I've often said with married couples, if you think of a triangle, and at the top of the triangle is the Lord, and uh, on the left side of the bottom of the triangle uh, and the right side of the bottom of the triangle are you and the person you're not very close to. If you're both drawing close to the Lord, what's happening to each other? You're moving closer and closer together. I'll tell you another way that the unity of the Spirit is being sought by believers now in a way that was unprecedented in our uh, our experience since I was born. And that's resistance. I'm not going to say the word persecution because we're, there's not any real persecution going on in America compared to the persecution suffered by our brothers and sisters around the world. But we all know now that that is not out of the uh, realm of possibility and probability. That open, true, real persecution uh, will become the normal experience for those of us who are seriously following the Lord Jesus Christ and are not compromising with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that uh, that has a, a very unifying effect on like-minded believers. Uh, like an army that uh, tends to fight each other when they're stuck in the barracks with nothing else to do, but let an enemy arise and all of a sudden the inter-fighting uh, uh, is, is dropped and uh, the, the army becomes one in opposition to its invading enemy. Uh, that's happening more and more. And so, what I want to what I want to get across here in the closing moments that we spend together is what do I see as the most desperate issue? <laughs> I know I say that all the time. Everything I talk about, so this is the most important thing that we could address. In fact, I'm pretty certain it was just a, a few weeks ago that I'm. Did a message in which I introduced it by saying, if I only had one thing to say and only had one opportunity to say it, I believe this message is what it would be. And in that context, that was true. And I'm not contradicting myself when I say that there may be other messages that I feel just as strongly about. But in, in the closing moments that we have, here shortly, I will address what I do believe is above all the most important thing that we are called to do in Night Light. But before I get to that closing statement, let me just mention a few things that I have strongly on my heart that I do want to address in days to come. We're in the, the midst right now of a study on the subject of righteousness and justice. Huge subjects. The reason they're huge subjects is because righteousness and justice are two words that we use all the time, especially righteousness in a religious setting, and as a result of it being used in a religious setting, it gets drowned in obscurity of meaning. We don't really know what it means. We hear the word justice used in a more worldly context, and again, we don't really know what it means from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that matters. And so we're we're delving into that. Now, you can't address those subjects without eventually leading to the study of the atonement, the cross, the incarnation, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what the cross was about. Uh, again, nothing I'm mentioning here can be adequately addressed in one hour a month, even if it's done in a series. Uh, other areas that uh, I, I feel strongly have to be addressed more specifically. Not because I think you don't have access to other teachers who can maybe address them more more clearly than me, but for whatever purpose God has me moving in these directions and has you listening, I pray that we can uh, make the best use of our interactions uh, on these subjects. But uh, uh, the other thing that I want to address, and I haven't addressed it, not because it's not obviously a huge subject, but because it's so huge, and that is how how do we deal with the ever increasing disintegration of sexual identity in the culture. How are you and I to be prepared to know how to address it? Um, that would take uh, a, a, a good deal of of doing. But I want to do it. We have to do it uh, if if I'm to stay true to the the calling. I, you know, people ask me, what exactly do you feel like your place is in the body of Christ? I, I get that question only in the context of classroom settings. But the only answer I can give is, I'm a watchman. I'm a watchman. I stand on the walls and I see what's coming and I try to sound the alarm as clearly and fairly and truthfully and compassionately as I can. Sometimes it may not sound compassionate. It may sound like I'm yelling and screaming that the house is on fire, because it certainly is on fire in many ways. But being a watchman means not just sounding the alarm, but offering answers where it's possible to offer them. Another area that I'm very concerned about that we hope to address more in days to come is helping the church begin to Move in the operation of the healing gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to, I don't want to be condescending or unnecessarily ironic when I say that it's really beyond my imagination that there's still people in the body of Christ that cling to and adhere to and propagate the foolish and meaningless and useless doctrine of the cessation of the gifts with the passing away of the apostolic age. Uh, To me that's saying that at the time the the, the tools that we need the most are no longer available at the time they are needed the most, which is now. And the tools are uh, the gifts of the Spirit. Well, these are all huge, huge subjects. And uh, we will continue to delve into them as much as possible. God helping us. But in closing, in the few moments that we've got left, I just want to ask you uh, to consider this. No matter how much we delve into those topics, as important as they are, I think of what Paul said in First Timothy chapter 1, where he says to Timothy, The goal and aim of our instruction is love out of a pure heart and real faith, sincere faith, and a clear conscience. Love out of a pure heart, a clear conscience, and true faith. That's the goal, Paul said, of his instruction. Well, if that was the goal of Paul's instruction, I don't know if I could dare try to improve on that. What's the ultimate purpose of nightlight? Is that we come to become people who walk in real love, that our consciences are clear because our hearts are pure before God as much as we know how to be, and that our faith is real. And faith and love are directly connected. Paul says to the Galatians, faith works by love. There is no such thing as faith by itself apart from love. And love, if it's real love, will be a manifestation of our faith. And that brings us to this question. What is love? John Lennon sang, all you need is love. What did he mean by that? How do you, how do you wrestle through these, these thorny questions when language is so hard to interpret and the, 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 the meanings of words change from generation to generation and in certain contexts one word may mean one thing and the same word may mean something completely different. How do you wrestle through that? Uh, I read a few days ago, of, of kind of a, it's funny but it's also sad. Uh, uh, about a little boy in a British church who was very sad, and his parents asked him why he was so downhearted, and he said, "Well, they they read in the scriptures a while ago that we will all be pillars in the temple of God, and we will never go out anymore." And he'd been sitting there in in the church service just living for the moment when the last amen would be spoken and he could get out of there and get outside and play. For him, the promise of Scripture that we will be pillars in the temple of our God and go out no more was almost like a sentence to purgatory, if not hell. Well, that's a funny story, but it's really not a funny story. How many grown-ups have that same misconception and that, that same struggle? So when I say that the goal of our instruction in in Nightlight is is love, what it what do you mean by that? What what is love? Say, so Clay, all, all you're going to do is just create more and more and more questions if you approach everything that way. Well, in some ways, that may be exactly what I'll end up doing because. Ultimately, without the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word of God for us and manifest it to us and then demonstrate it through us, this is all just a pursuit of words and academia and information. And as Mary would say, chewing bubble gum till it's lost its flavor. Unless we can communicate truth in a way that the Holy Spirit is happy with it, so much so that he can celebrate it by manifesting it to us and demonstrating it through us, it's really a a, a useless endeavor. But it's not a useless endeavor. He who has begun a good work in us will complete it. He will bring it to completion. And so the love of God is being perfected in us and will be manifested through us. And that's the demonstration of sincere faith and results in a clear conscience. Paul said that was the goal of his ministry and work. And so I, I cannot improve on that. I just can only pray that I'll be able to add to it to some degree. So what is the love of God? How does the love of God manifest itself through us and to us? It's more than emotion, but it is an emotion. Far more than an emotion. But all of our doctrinal struggles and all of our question answering and all of our debates and all of our conversations, they are ultimately meaningless without ultimately the love of God coming through them. And while there's always a lot we could say about what love is, I think the one thing that we can close with here today is love never fails. That means love never quits. Love never stops. Love never gives up. The love of God that never gives up on you begins to manifest itself in ways through you toward those who you want to give up on, those who give you lots of reasons to give up on them. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes all these words that we get caught up in and don't know how to define. He's the one who will guide us into all the truth of them. And the ultimate truth of them is that he wants us to learn to give love the way we have received love. And how have we received love? What kind of love have we received? A love that never gives up that never leaves us, that never forsakes us, that never throws us away. And so, in these closing moments of this celebratory time of number 300 nightlight, of all the things I could possibly want to communicate, no matter how many times you may hear me say that in other contexts, it is this, that we should love and can love and will love those around us, even the most broken, even the most frustrating, with the same love that we have been loved by. In these last moments together, if you'll just listen to this song, maybe it'll get across what I'm not saying very well. God bless you all. Thank you for 25 years. May God grant us the next quarter of a century to be more fruitful and more loving. Just listen in our closing moments together.
1: Because your every move's not right. Just because you don't seem to be waiting. Doesn't mean I've left you all alone to fight. Just because you cannot always feel my presence. There's no sign that you don't... My child, if you think your mistakes cause me to turn on you so easily, And there's something that I must remind. them into space. The hardest thing I ever did was hang there in disgrace, but I did it just because I love you. The thing that hurt the most, that nearly ripped my mind apart, was not the crucifixion it hurt right from the start. The pain that finally killed me was the pain that broke my heart, but I did it just because I love you. Into the pits of hell I went, and the three days I might As King oh. When you think you fail that fight, and I'm still on my throne. You're headed for the greatest day that you have ever known.